Welcome to Family History Mysteries, a podcast that tells the stories uncovered through family history research, the unexpected stories of everyday people. I'm an avid family historian who's been compiling my family tree for over 15 years, with now nearly 20,000 people collectively recorded in my trees. Welcome to episode two, titled Bigamy. This, as a word of warning, may have some graphic details and may disturb some, so please be aware before you tune in. I've decided to cover this in two episodes. There's a lot of interesting information that's attached to the person that I'm talking about today. And this person is Elizabeth Craven, who was my great-great-great-grandmother. And when I first started looking into my family tree, I thought she was going to be like a lot of ladies in my tree, you know, quite uninteresting. In those days, you didn't find a lot of information about women. They didn't have occupations generally, particularly if they married and had children, and they were pretty much lost in the records behind their husbands and fathers. However, I found two marriage certificates, and they both were to my great-great-great-grandfather, which perplexed me. And as I decided to delve a little bit deeper and broaden the years of my search, I then uncovered a first husband to Elizabeth Craven, who I had no knowledge of, and quite a bit more attached to her as well. So the two episodes are going to be covering Elizabeth's story, but also quite a bit about this mysterious first husband. Elizabeth Craven was born on the 5th of February 1840 in Lancashire, England. She was the second child of a family of seven who immigrated to Australia at one year old to Port Phillip on the 1st of July, 1841 on the England. Her father, William Craven, was a silk dyer at the time of his marriage, but by the time they emigrated, he listed his occupation as a farm labourer. The family settled in Melbourne and lived and worked in the inner city of Melbourne and in the suburbs of Richmond, Collingwood and Paran. He had varied occupations, including a labourer, a tanner, a store owner and a farmer. Elizabeth first comes up in the records with her marriage to Alphaeus John Barrington at St Stephen's Church in Richmond on the 16th of November 1857. As Elizabeth was only 17, she needed her father's consent to marry. Alphaeus, also known as Alphonse or Albert, and other names as well, was born in Newfoundland, Canada in 1832. He ended up being a, a very interesting character. He emigrated in 1854 and came out most likely as a crew member on a ship, no doubt to seek his fortune in the gold rush as many other Canadians were doing at that time. There are no formal passenger records to be found on him, so we presume that he most likely jumped ship. In 1855, he was working in the silver mines at Molagul, a small town west of Bendigo in Victoria. A year later, he was a miner who also owned a store at Kingower, a small town nearby. And just a little bit of history, this is a, a rich gold area. In fact, the largest gold nugget found in Victoria was in Kingower in August 1857, which was pretty much in the middle of when Elizabeth had married Alphaeus and was certainly living in Kingower. So from the time of their marriage, Elizabeth lived with Alphaeus at Kingower, no doubt helping him out in his store, until March 1958. And at this point, she left and returned to her parents. 
she was visiting her parents but didn't return uh, and there'll be more details about why and the and uh, the circumstances surrounding that later on. It seems what Elphaz was also unaware of was that Elizabeth was pregnant with their first child. She had this child, William James Barrington, on the 21st of September 1858, so exactly six months after she left. On William's birth certificate, his father's name is recorded as Elphins. Quite often in the records, I find that there's variations to the name Alphaeus, and that's usually because a lot of the records uh, have been written phonetically with, in those days, much lower literacy levels than we know of today. Young William Barrington died at the age of two in December 1860. His grandfather, William Craven, was the informant and he listed the father's name as John Benjamin Barrington. And that name and variations of that name don't feature in any of the formal records. So did Elizabeth's father really know this man very well, other than signing off on a marriage certificate without looking at the formal records of the marriage certificate too closely? Elizabeth left, Elphaeus continued in Kingower, and in January 1861, he is in a newspaper uh, showing that he applied for a 10-year lease to mine quartz with Charles Harding under the name New Era Company. So we can assume at this point that he's doing quite well for himself with his store and is able to get a little bit behind him to be able to secure a lease for further mining. By November 1862, Elphaeus, listed as Albert on the shipping records, commenced a prospecting expedition in Dunedin in New Zealand and he arrived in New Zealand on the 22nd of November 1862. Shipping records stated he was 25 years old and single. He was in fact 30 years old and still married. I'm now going to take you to the excerpts I mentioned earlier from what I found online to a very interesting story as to what Albert got up to, or Alphonse, or Alphaeus got up to over in New Zealand. So the New Zealand Geographic article I found online is titled Barrington's Lost Gold. So it starts with talking about the story of Barrington and his mining expeditions over there. Three haggard men were crossing a branch of the dark river, dragging their feet against the swift current. Their hair and beards were long and matted, their faces scratched and streaked with caked blood. Bedraggled Guernsey shirts and fustian trousers cloaked their angular bodies like oversized potato sacks. A half-starved dog swam ahead and shook itself dry on a gravel bank. Its shaggy coat was stretched over protruding ribs like the bellow of a concertina. The first man across wore a ragged tunic made of crudely stitched blanket. His eyes were lost in the cavity of his, of his skull. Approaching the captain, he muttered a feeble plea for tobacco. Like most, both of his impoverished companions, Alphonse Barrington was a gold miner. Six months earlier, he set out to prospect in the unmapped mountains of South Westland. His journey, full of misadventures and unspeakable hardship, was to become one of the most heroic episodes in the history of New Zealand exploration. So the three men who staggered out of the wilderness in such an emaciated state on that crisp June morning were later described by Captain Eshel Skipper of a whaleboat which ferried supplies across Lake Wakatapu as living skeletons covered with skin, so weak they were barely able to speak. Wrecks of humanity recorded another witness. The year was 1864 
Abraham Lincoln had just been re-elected President of the United States and the population of Australia had reached one million. In New Zealand's North Island, racial temperatures ran sour and exploded into war when the punitive expedition of Gerald Duncan, General Duncan Cameron crossed the Mangatawiri River and entered the King Country. Meanwhile, in the South Island, men in their thousands scarred the mountains and diverted the rivers in a frenzied search for gold. In January 1863, Alphaeus was one of a working party that were working on a claim at Arthur's Point near Queenstown. It yielded little reward for Alphonse Barrington, as he was known at this time, and is listed here as a veteran of the New South Wales gold rushes. The Shotover River flooded frequently, damaging cradles and sluice boxes, and the little gold that he dished out was spent on repairs. By November 1863, Barrington was finally forced to leave in search for a better paying claim. A month later, in the company of Edward Dunmore and William Bayless, he landed at the head of Lake Wakatapu, where the braiding Dart River stains its limpid waters with a milky grey cloud of glacial silt. They walked some three kilometres and camped by the river, and an epic journey had begun. The Dart River is born amongst glaciers on the south side of the Barrier Ridge and arches southward through a wide grassland valley scooped out during the last ice age. Over the years it has built an extensive alluvial plains where applied oyster catches and banded dotterels dawdle in the shallows and the ever-shifting gravel islands have been streamlined by the swift current. It was here that Barrington and his mates had a foretaste of things to come. After a pre-dawn start, they walked up the valley, heavy laden with mining tools and provisions. They were crossing one of the branching river channels when Bayless, straying from the ford, was swept off his feet and carried downstream. He fought desperately to struggle free of the heavy swag, but the leather straps held tight and the weight dragged him under. Barrington dumped his load in the river, shouted to Dunmore to look after it, and swam to the rescue. They made it to the shore after Bayless finally managed to ditch the swag which bobbed away down the river. Barrington ran a quarter of a mile along the bank in waist-deep water until the swag came whirling by. They lost their tin dishes, a long-handed shovel, and most of the tea, sugar and baking soda. Oatmeal, flour, and blankets were drenched. It was only the second day of their journey. Leaving Bayless to mind the gear, Dunmore and Barrington retraced their steps to the head of Lake Wakatapu to replace lost equipment and food. On the spur of the moment, they borrowed a dog from the storekeeper. Christmas Day found the trio camped at the junction of Stony and Wild Dog Creeks, today the main and north branches of Rootburn. They cooked four Maori hens, which the dog had caught, and boiled a pot of plum duff. The tea they sipped by the fire tasted of wood smoke and a cherished bottle of brandy completed the atmosphere of celebration and new beginning. From here on, their route became progressively rougher. The valley of the Wild Dog Creek chiselled deeply between the broken wall of the Humboldt Mountains and the tussocked slopes of the Serpentine Range was overgrown with thick scrub, which camouflaged the treacherous jumble of loosely stacked boulders. Swags and protruding tools snagged in the tangle of tree daisies and alpine veronicas and feet punched deep holes through the densely woven undergrowth. 
It was on days like this, wrote another explorer of the time, that the choicest additions were made to Shakespeare's tongue. The country head was by no means unknown. Scores of secretive prospectors constantly combed the ranges, and Barrington's party would often come across abandoned tools, the remains of campfires and makeshift shelters. They descended towards the hidden Falls Creek through tussock fields banded with crumbling bluffs, which sent the meltwater stream bouncing down in a series of waterfalls. After a few hair-raising moments, grasping for handholds on bunches of slippery snowgrass, Barrington promised to himself that he would never go this way again. Little did he suspect that in the following months he would cross the North Coal seven times, often alone and in much more trying circumstances. After several days of rain, the Pike River was running high. Unable to cross it on foot, Barrington's party also resolved to build a canoe. With nothing more than a tomahawk, they felled a large tree and shaped it into a crude dugout. Three times Barrington returned to Queenstown to replenish provisions while his mates prospected the country around Lake Alabaster. The first time he was delayed for a month by snowstorms, even though it was in the height of summer, it says in brackets, hurricane force winds and an attack of dysentery. When he finally reached the camp, he found, found Edward Dunmore near death of starvation. He hadn't eaten for 12 days and for the previous seven, he had rationed the last half kilogram of oatmeal. When all food was gone, his fellow sufferer tried to reach Arrowtown, but was said to have perished on the way. Bayless made the journey to civilization with Barrington, but once in town, Bayless immediately went on a spree of drinking and bragging about where they were prospecting and how much they were getting. The two men parted company and Barrington returned to the lake camp with a new partner, a Welshman called James Farrell. On the next trip out, Dunmore decided that he'd had enough of this unforgiving country and dropped out of the partnership, and his place was found by a French vagabond called Antoine Simenon. It was now mid-March, 1864. For several days, the party camped by the lake, resting, hunting and mending their clothes. Then on the morning of the 15th, they shouldered their 50 kilogram swags and struck north along the Pike River, weaving their way through a thicket of beech saplings. Over the next three months, the newly formed coterie were to be severely tested. It was a hard land to live off and the supplies of flour and oatmeal dwindled fast. To stretch out the time between reprovisioning trips, they ate almost anything they could catch, shoot or gather. Weaker, a robust flightless um, bird the size of a chicken was their staple diet. They also shot eels, robins, wrens and the occasional white heron. Even a hawk, which Barrington described as fearful, tough eating. Kakapo were an easy prey for the dog. In the mid-1800s, shooting was still something of a ritual, requiring a great deal of patience on the part of the hunter and a de degree of cooperation in the hunted. To supplement their erratic meat diet, the men gathered anise, a plant of the carrot family, spear grass, fern roots and wineberry, uh, but their knowledge of edible plants was poor. On one occasion, Simonon picked a handkerchief full of purple tutu berries, mashed them and squeezed them out, a pint of sweet Ribena coloured wine, which they all enjoyed immensely. The leftover pulp was thrown away and it was pounced on by the ever hungry dog. An hour later, the piteous beast, toughened to eat almost anything digestible, collapsed in a paroxysm of violent convulsions, 
and to save his life, the men had to pour billyfuls of salted water down his throat. They continued north, prospecting as they went, and crossing the pike where it veers off eastwards towards the main divide. They travelled northeast, following the Gorge River to its headwaters, then climbed over a high saddle and dropped sharply into the Cascade. Here at last, on fine gravel beaches, littered with quartz boulders and sequined with mica crystals, there was enough gold to justify a week-long trial. They set up a camp and planned a roster of hunting and prospecting chores. The weather was getting progressively worse and the rivers were rising rapidly, rapidly after days of persistent rain, making prospecting difficult. After one forced evacuation of the tent, Barrington wrote, a creek where last night where there were only a few inches of water trickling through the boulders, this morning was a large foaming river running at 20 knots and with enough water to launch a good-sized schooner. Spending a similar winter in the remote mountains was a frightening prospect. Almost all the provisions were exhausted, game was sparser than ever, and floods soon rented, rendered any gold mining impossible. Huddled under the sopping tent, they made a decision to turn back, but the choice of the route almost split the party. Barrington suggested going east towards Lake Hawea, a distance he thought of only 50 kilometres. The others opted for a beeline route to Wakatipu. I should go alone then, said Barrington, and later regretted that he hadn't. Confining his sullenness to the pages of his diary, he wrote, if I had a dog, nothing should have prevented me from going alone, as I know it cannot be a worse road than we have had coming here. On April the 29th, they dumped their mining tools and together headed south. On the third day of hard travelling through the gorge terraces of the Cascade River, they climbed the 50 metre high Derwood's Falls and reached the slopes of Red Hills, a 60 kilometre range of barren rock, which in the delicate evening light often wears the fleeting blush of the Australian desert. Here, in heavy rain, Barrington was separated from his companions. Thinking they had gone ahead, he hurried up the river, cooing and firing his gun, but there was no reply. He spent a cold and hungry night alone, walked all the following day and set up a lonely camp just below the bush line at the head of the Pike River. He was wrapped in a meagre blanket, his teeth chattering and his limbs stiffening by cramps. Rats had stolen a little duck that he had shot on the way up. He had not eaten for six days now, but he did not feel hunger. The pall of snow which silenced his tent was three quarters of a metre thick. At last the sun burnt through the clouds and in the early morning of May 14th, 10 days after he had lost Farrell and Simonon, Barrington set off towards Stag Pass, a broad high alpine saddle leading into the watershed of the Barrier River. He staggered through the deepening snow, collapsing every 20 steps, crawling, resting then, and getting up again. By noon, he was only two kilometres above his camp. Through the overwhelming weakness, he felt death approaching. In desperation, he threw away all of his waterlogged belongings, keeping only a blanket, a gun, some gunpowder and lead shot. A small chamois leather pouch where he kept a few specks of gold fell at his feet, but he did not pick it up. After several hours of wading through the soft binding snow, he finally reached the pass and looked down into the barrier valley. There he saw a grassy flat and a wispy ribbon of smoke. He found his mate's camp. Barrington stayed by the fire while Farrell and Simonon, who also hadn't eaten for two days, went hunting and shot a pair of weaker. Two wet and hungry days later, 
Walking up the south branch of the Barrier River, they shot two magpies and ate them all. They were approaching intervention saddle at the fringe of the Olivine Ice Plateau, a large and isolated pocket of ice from which numerous glaciers ooze through a palisade of jagged mountains. Today, it is unthinkable to venture there without a full array of mountaineering equipment, ropes, crampons, ice axes and the like. Barrington and his mates had nothing but guns, knives and a tomahawk. That night, camped on the flats of the Forgotten River, Barrington recalled the events of the day on the glacier. What a sight then met our eyes. Nothing but mountains of snow, as far as we could see, in every direction but west. At one time, Seminem was behind me. I heard him sing out, look out. I turned around and he was coming down the snow at a fearful rate, head first on his back. He held the gun in one hand, but had to let it go, when both he and the gun passed me at the rate of a swallow and did not stop till they reached a little flat about two miles down with a fall of 1,000 feet. I thought he was killed, but he was all right with the exception of being a little frightened. Such a day I hope to never see again. Stinging sleet whipped them in the days that followed, and on long fireless nights the snow around the camp lay half a metre deep. On the 21st of May they entered the Olivine River Gorge. Descent through the gorge was slow and perilous. At one point Farrell volunteered to be low and down on a rocky ledge to pass the swags across. He was about halfway down when the flax rope broke and he plummeted into a whirlpool of white water, narrowly missing a 60 metre drop. The rapids engulfed him for over a minute before gasping for air, Farrell found a handhold and hauled himself onto a boulder. Four days later, they reached the old camp at Lake Elwoodluster. Torrential rain set in and once again they were trapped in the tent. The lake level began to rise and they found themselves camped on a rapidly shrinking island. Barrington wrote, This is the most miserable day of my existence. We had to turn out last night at 10 o'clock and the water rose so fast that we could not get anything away but our blankets. The night was very dark and before we reached the hill, I got up to my arms in water. I had to walk up and down all night, the rain still pouring down. If this night does not kill us, we shall never die. On June the 7th, they were crossing the main divide, plodding in deep soft snow, changing the lead every 10 metres. A day later, in a swirling blizzard, they reached the bush line on the eastern side, where Farrell shot seven kaka and thereby spared the dog, who had featured strongly on that night's menu. Two days later, they heard a pumping swish of pigeon's wings and the echoing gaboom of a shotgun. They'd encountered a pigeon shooting party. Captain Eshaw reached for his tobacco pouch and the men lit their pipes, but the smoke they longed for made them sick. Neither would their stomachs accept food. No one would believe the human frame could be so reduced, marvelled a witness at William Rees' station at the head of the lake. Their cheekbones and noses, besides the elbows, hips and other bony parts of the body, were protruding through the skin. Their feet were chaffed and frostbitten, covered with running sores, and all the flesh was eaten from the tops of Barrington's toes. And I'll post a, a photo or a sketch uh, of the men uh, crossing part of the waters. Uh, and you can see how haggard they look. Lake Wakatipu was a sheet of glass when the steamer Alexandra reached Queenstown after a four hour journey. Barrington and his companions were led ashore and taken to the newly built Frankton Public Hospital, where during the ensuing weeks they were nursed back to health. 
From the hospital windows, they could see the bustling town, which only two years before had not existed. So now they're back from their journey and here's a, a, a bit of an indicator uh, of how they explained what had happened. The diggers of the lake were moved to compassion and generosity by the party's hardships. The small community at the head of the lake immediately contributed 15 pounds for their needs. A week later, another 40 pounds was donated by miners from Queensland and Arrowtown. Not everyone, however, took this story at face value. One skeptic went so far as to suggest that Barrington and his mates had never left the head of the lake and that they had been on a spree in the shanties there and that the diary published in the newspaper that Barrington had written had been fabricated by Queenstown Wit. Barrington wrote to the editor of the newspaper rebutting these cruel and unjust assertions. They were, he declared, very personally offensive to some of my party. What made some observers sceptical was that although Barrington said that he had found payable gold, his party had returned with no gold to show off their efforts. At 8pm on July 20th, 1864, a large crowd gathered at Bracken's Commercial Hall on Ballarat Street. The hall was lit with kerosene lanterns and the air was thick with pipe smoke. Outside, a winter breeze corrugated the lake and beyond it, the stark wall of the Remarkables nestled under the snow. A year earlier, Barrington would have been in a similar crowd cheering James Hector and his idea of the Holyford Valley Road to the West Coast. Now the limelight was on him and the rowdy audience was keen to hear the first-hand account of his journey. The rumours of gold in the Cascade River had spread like bushfire. Barrington wore a digger's Sunday best, a grey Crimean shirt, white or cream moleskin trousers, knee-high Wellington boots, and perhaps a crimson sash tied at the side. His diary, which miraculously survived in the folds of a blanket, had just been printed in the Lake Wakatip Mail, and he enjoyed a moderate popularity. There were, however, many questions surrounding the discovery of the new goldfields. There were also allegations that the entire story had been fabricated in a drinking establishment. The main problem was that Barrington had no way of proving the existence of gold. He recalled his struggle for life on the snowy slopes of Stag Pass, how the pouch containing all the gold specimens slipped out when he was emptying his swag, and how he was too exhausted to pick it up. In the grogged coziness of the hall, such a scenario stirred up a wave of sarcastic smiles and malicious comments. Then to everyone's surprise, Antoine Simonon, produced a coarse speck of gold, which he explained he'd only recently found in his shop belt. The specimen came from the Cascade River, he said. Here, here, cheered the miners. A piece of real dispersed all of the doubt. With myomic fervour, all of men overwhelmed by gold fever said they were ready to follow Barrington into the Cascade, and he was only too pleased to leave them. Yet for all the gold in New Zealand, he would not go back overland. His plan was to charter a seagoing vessel and with 12 months provisions sailed to the mouth of the Arawata River. From there, they would travel on foot to the river where their mining tools had been cached. Miners applauded with cheers and preparations began at once. A month later, a flotilla of two cutters, a brig and a schooner left Port Chalmers and sailed south. The sea was kind and the weather fair and hopes were high for the El Dorado ahead. The little fleet crossed the strait and around the point, skimming past the narrow openings of fords and landed at the mouth of Arawata River. Bending under heavy loads of provisions and tools, a snaking procession of prospectors 
headed southwest towards the point where the Cascade River cuts between the Red Hills and the northern Olivine Range. There, Barrington assured them, was the finest gold-bearing country he had seen in New Zealand. They soon realised that Barrington had been mistaken in his geography. The site of his goldfield was not on a river running into Jackson Bay, as he had assumed, but rather in one that reached the sea to the south. Although they soon found the equipment dumped there, they found none of the gold that Barrington claimed to have discovered nearby, nor did they find any gold in the Arrawatta River, despite prospecting a long way up its valley. The only place that payable gold was found, in brackets it says, offering very modest returns of between seven shillings sixpence and 10 shillings a day, was on the beach at Jackson Bay itself. As might be expected, Barrington's companions were disappointed and angry. Just how angry is apparent from the report of the police sergeant at Greymouth, further up the west coast, where a majority of the party arrived on the 21st of December, 1864, having to decide to cut their losses. The report says, two cutters, the Nugget and Petrel, have just entered the Grey River. They came from Jackson's Bay. They, the party, have been prospecting in that district for the last 10 weeks. The well-known prospector Barrington was the leader of the party. After giving the country a fair trial, they have arrived at the sorry conclusion that payable gold is not to be obtained in Jackson's Bay. At one time, they intended to take summary vengeance on Barrington as it was through his statements at Queenstown that they had been induced to incur the expenditure of chartering two crafts to prospect his supposed El Dorado. The two parties together number 38 men. They had arrived here in a complete state of destitution as there all was risked at the success of the expedition. It has proved an utter failure. They intend giving the Grey another trial. They also report that the Carter Thames remains still at Jackson's Bay, the captain having refused to give the diggers a passage to Nelson under four pounds per man. This they could not pay, having nothing. It was mooted to take both the craft and the captain back to Nelson and lay the case before the owners of the craft. Obviously, Barrington now was regarded as a liar who had deceived everyone by talking up what was either a fraud or a delusion. A number of reports dispatched to various newspapers at the same time as the above letter confirmed the widespread resentment and indignation directed against him. A correspondent to the Nelson columnist was particularly scathing. He wrote, I think it would be very beneficial to the public if you would publish the following facts for the accuracy of which I vouch. The cutter petrol from Nelson and Nugget from Invercargill with 38 diggers have just put him here. They have been out prospecting in Jackson's Bay and surrounding country for three months, finding only the colour of gold in one place. The Nugget is commanded by Barrington of Queenstown Celebrity and was fitted out for the purpose by a private enterprise on the famous statement of Barrington and his party when they came back to Queenstown from a prospecting tour towards the west coast from Lake Wakatipu. That they had found payable gold and they had got several ounces of nuggety gold but had dropped the bag on the ground, being so weak from the want of rations, they could not pick it up and carry it further and so left it there. In brackets it says, but then they carried a double-barrelled gun and about 10 pounds of gunpowder and shot. Close brackets. The parties belonging to the petrol complained very much about Barrington's conduct and that he had completely led them astray. There is no such gold field as he represented.
The man who had caused all this hubbub said very little at this point. A few months earlier, a famed prospector and explorer, now looking to being a hoaxer and an outcast, he stepped ashore from the cutter, ironically named Nugget, and vanished. And this is the last that New Zealand hears of Alphonse Barrington, as he called himself when he was there. Did Barrington and his companions really find payable deposits of gold? Or was their story an elaborate bluff to attract attention? We will never know with certainty, but towards the turning point of the journey, when they claimed to have found gold, Barrington seems severely disoriented and his topographical references are not reliable. No one has ever found gold in the Cascade to justify a full-scale mining operation in such remote and austere country. More than just a record of another failed prospecting venture, the Odyssey of Elphons Barrington is an extraordinary account of human determination and survival against all odds. His journey, reckless and ill-prepared as it was, has inspired generations of mountain explorers and evoked a lasting respect for the Southwestland. Goes on to say that Barrington's reputation rests firmly on a single epic expedition. It was a journey of true exploration undertaken into completely unknown country and without the assistance of Maori guides, unlike most of the European expeditions in New Zealand. The roughness of the country covered and the severity of the privations endured were noteworthy. Barrington's diary of the journey is also remarkable. As a gold prospector's record of discovery, it is unique and its descriptive power is unmatched by any other account of New Zealand exploration. The respect for Barrington's exploration is so revered by New Zealanders that a series called First Crossings, a reality TV program made in New Zealand, did an episode on Alphonse Barrington, where two men followed the, the footsteps of him and traversed the mountain ranges and glaciers near Queenstown to outline how unique it was in New Zealand's exploration history. What sort of man was Barrington? Although, as Nancy Taylor says in her introduction to her edition of his journal, the journal tells us almost nothing about Barrington, but it reveals a lot. Put this together with what can be deduced from his behaviour in Queenstown and later on the West Coast, it becomes possible to form a good idea of his character. There can be no doubt that Barrington was a tough, adaptive and quick learner. He had great confidence in himself and his ability to cope with difficult situations. That confidence, together with his general optimism, seems at times to have led him downplay negative factors and to some degree skew his judgment, perhaps even result in self-delusion. At the same time, though, he had a sense of humour, which even in the most trying circumstances he could direct to himself. It takes someone with a reasonably well-developed sense of the absurd to be able to comment when ravenously hungry and reduced to sharing a tiny robin and three wrens with his two comrades that they were the smallest joints I ever saw. Not only could Barrington laugh at himself, even when he was anxious and hungry, he still could respond to the natural beauty of the landscape in which he suffered. In late December, when faced with the uncertain prospect of crossing the main divide by steep snow slopes of North Col, he wrote, camped just under the snow, weather fine but cold, beautiful scenery. The cotton plant, mountain daisy, grows profusely here and of splendid quality. Lake Alabaster, he declared on finally managing to reach it, was a beautiful little lake. In April, when finding enough to eat had become an ever-present anxiety, on reaching Thetatan, 
he could still muster enough enthusiasm for his surroundings to respond to their aesthetic qualities. Found the lake about one mile east of the river, a very fine one, one mile square with a beautiful grassy mound all round it. An ability to appreciate pretty scenery is not usually evident among those close to starvation. From both the journal and his conduct in Queenstown, it is obvious that Barrington saw himself as a leader of men and generally does seem to have shown the initiative and sense of responsibility for his companions that they look for in a leader. He also had a pretty good sense of direction, an eye for topography, and knew something about navigation and maps. One type of initiative that deserves special mention because it was to be so evident later in his career, he had an entrepreneurial flair, an eye for business opportunities sharper than his skill as a prospector. Despite being half dead from hunger, on returning to Queenstown, he still had his wits about him sufficiently to get his journal published in the newspaper. Presumably, he did not offer it for publication for nothing, but even if he did, his dealings with the paper and the way he handled the public meeting imply an appreciation of the potential benefits of publicity that seemed very modern. Before coming to New Zealand, he decided in Victoria there was more money to be made from selling to miners than prospecting with them in his storekeeping at Kingdower, and in the years to come, he was to make his living from a number of commercial ventures. There can be no doubt either that Barrington was an educated man, one who was good with words, both spoken and written. In Queenstown, he confidently addressed a big public gathering, was given a rousing reception, which may not have been easy for someone uneducated. His journal is also well written. Perhaps the late Wakatip Miles editor could get some credit for that but the fact that it exists at all is evidence of the value Barrington attached to the written word. In the brief account published by the newspaper on the 2nd of July 1864, wet its readers' appetites for what was to follow. Barrington indicated the only reason his journal had survived the journey, rather than being jettisoned along with most of the contents of his swag, was that he was in the habit of stowing it rolled up in his blankets to keep it dry. To undo his bedroll had simply been too much effort for a man at the end of his tether. While that makes good sense, it does not explain why he kept on writing it under the appalling conditions he encountered. It is all too easy to underestimate the self-discipline and determination required when suffering from hunger and cold in wet clothes and blankets to keep a journal up to date. The only plausible explanation is that he believed that their journey mattered and that it mattered too to have a written account of the journey. Most men would have stopped writing very early in the piece and resorted, one particularly dismal morning, to using the notebook to light the fire. Was Barrington a liar and a fraud? The information available does not warrant such a conclusion. In fact, it suggests the opposite. No sane person leads a party of 50 or so robust armed diggers to a remote location to find gold he had assured them was there, unless he was convinced himself that it actually exists. A fraud would make sure that it is, he is a long way from those that he dupes before they realise what had happened. Barrington was intelligent and enterprising, but he never had much success as a prospector. In this instance, it appears the hardships he and his party had undergone made it necessary for him to believe that they must have found gold. Graham Bishop, a government geologist in the 70s and 80s, mapped much of the country to traversed by Barrington's party and is of the view that while it is likely they would indeed have found plentiful signs of gold in the Gorge River, the Cascade Valley is a very different proposition. Barrington's optimistic assessment notwithstanding, from a geological point of view, it's simply not a good bet. A fraud Barrington was not, but neither was he an angel. 
there were limits to his honesty, especially in his personal life, as we're about to discover. Please tune into the second half of this podcast. I would love to be able to give you information about the rest of Albert's life and what he got up to. He was known more as Albert rather than Alphaeus, you will find in the second podcast of this series. We're also going to be discovering a little more about Elizabeth. And yes, there are some more surprises to come in regards to her as well. I'd like to acknowledge some online sources that I use to tell the New Zealand component of Alphaeus's life today the New Zealand Geographic and the Electronic Journal of Australia and New Zealand. I will put those links on the Facebook page, particularly if you're interested in, in delving really deeply into Alphaeus's journal over in New Zealand. If you have an interesting story or a mystery that you would like to have solved in your family tree, please go to my Facebook page in order to contact me. I'd love to share your story on a future podcast and we will tune in next time.